I've been at Sunset Church the entirety of my ministry time for 15 years now. And I remember uh, before I started ministry while I was in seminary, I had a conversation with a pastor who was in New York, and he said something to me that kind of has become a foundational kind of thought in my mind, uh, something that kind of guides me, a wisdom that he even didn't think would be that impactful, but has been really impactful for me. He said, when you first get to a church, the main thing you should try and do is at least stay five years. No matter how hard it is, if you don't fail or get fired, you should stay five years. Because if you don't stay five years, you won't do very much. And the temptation to want to quit will be very strong within those first five years. Super helpful advice for me. I didn't have any idea how prophetic that would be because if you were here during 2007 and 2010, you remember how hard those years were. And I remember during those hard years, don't quit. And then I'm not, I, haven't fi- I haven't failed yet. I haven't gotten fired. <laughs> Stay five years. My friend also said, if you make it five, you should try and stay another 10. Because if you stay 10 and you don't get fired or you don't fail, you will probably begin to try and lead things and you'll begin to experience some of the blessings if you make it those next 10 years. And that's true. If I look back at 15 years now, and actually at that, it happens the chance that at that five-year mark is when I started making adjustments to be the lead pastor, and I stayed basically about 10 years as a lead pastor now, I started to see some of that fruit. Some of that fruit is seeing some of the youth I had grow up and become members and leaders in our church. And that's one of the things that I got to experience as a blessing because I'm here for those 15 years. Those 15-year-old kids are now 30-plus-year-old adults with children of their own leading, and it's amazing to see that. That's a blessing. And so there was incredible wisdom in that. If you stay 10 years, you're going to start to lead and hopefully begin to see some of the blessing. At 15, my friend said, and I took this a little bit further than what he said, he said, uh, you, you need to either stay basically forever or it's time to go. Uh, that's what he said. Um, now you're going to be afraid. I'm going to tell you I'm time for me to go. <laughs> but I took it this way. Uh, and there's some wisdom that he was saying in that. I don't think he intended it this way, but this is how I've taken it. He said, it's time to go. And I, I felt this in my heart too, because if you just kind of stay and you don't have vision or you don't know what you want to do in the future, you're just going to maintain things and you're going to be the problem for the church. Because I think about it this way. It's like an old mattress. Over time, your body kind of has formed a spot in your mattress, and it's super comfortable. Uh, and if someone who's been around a church for 15 years, there's ho- and they haven't been fired, and they haven't failed, uh, probably people are comfortable with you, at least somewhat, and you have enough relational capital where no one's really going to challenge you uh, because they like you. But if you don't know where you're going and you don't know where you're leading it, you're just going to lead it nowhere. And it's death for that leader and it's death for the church because everyone's just going to be comfortable and you're just going to comfort yourself till you're irrelevant or not a mission anymore. And I found that to be very helpful. Uh, you know, is there a vision for the next future? I spent 2021 actually wrestling with that future. Um, anticipation of me becoming 40 was kind of the main impetus for this. Uh, and trying to imagine where Sunset Church could be going. Uh, To the best of my ability, and obviously this is from my own engagement with the Lord and my own trying to understand the times and our circumstances, so there's definitely some fallibility in that, but just trying to imagine the future, share with our leaders, and 
part of that future requires us to make significant changes to our church. Uh, and I spent 2022 last year working with our leadership, thankful for our, many of our elders, our pastors, our board, uh, wrestling with this. Because the vision of the future requires us to hold the things that we do kind of open-handedly and not say, well, just because we're doing this for the last 40 years means we need to continue to do it. And, and that's what we hope to share with you uh, a little bit at our 11 o'clock meeting. There are some significant fundamental changes to our church's organization, uh, to our leadership, and it requires a renewal of engagement from our members as well. One of the challenges I see us pursuing our future is that at a certain time, after 40-something years, you get comfortable, not only with the leaders who are there, but we as members get comfortable, and we, you know, we have a building, we have you know, some programs that make us feel like things are happening okay, but it requires an, an intentional re-engagement and commitment a commitment of time, talents, treasures to pursue it because if we just kind of comfort our way until we go forward, we won't do very much. But fundamental to that is this need for Jesus. I, I hope when we share these things that the change isn't and the, the reasons for it or the, the hopes for it don't get lost in the fact that what we most need is still fundamentally Jesus. And I want to unpack that because how many of you have gone to church for some time? And if you've been in our church, some of you have been in our church since the church was started. Maybe you were here even when the church first moved out from Chinatown, CIBC, uh, Chinese Independent Baptist Church, Chinatown, and they were dreaming. And at first they actually bought a, a, a house in 19, I think, 77, 76 in the sunset, and they started meeting there, and they met at Lincoln High School for a little bit, and then before they even bought the original CE building, which was a grocery store, maybe you were part of that, and maybe you've been a part of not necessarily our church, but another church, five, ten years. Have you ever got to a point in your church experience where you realize or think, there must be more than this? You ever feel like that? You can be honest, right? As pastors, leaders in our church, we, we can be honest about this. You, you go through church at a certain time, and you do things faithfully, your best attempt to do things faithfully, you ever got to the point where you asked the question, shouldn't there be more? If you're honest, you probably have felt that if you've been in the church longer than one year. But what's the more? And I think this is where we get lost. If we're not careful, we begin to pursue that more, that the natural inclination, that kind of beginning holy discontentment is good, but then we pursue that more exactly like the culture around us. More people. That's what we pursue. We, we pursue more money. We pursue more programs. We pursue more small groups. We pour, pursue more relevant worship. Those things by themselves are inherently bad. They're not in the problem, actually. But you see, as the Western church, and I can see this in my own heart as I'm thinking about the future, we can pursue all those ways and get them, actually, that's how good we are at doing church these days. We can actually get these things and still not have it. Because you can see communities of God get those things that they're pursuing and still realize what we are pursuing and the more we still don't have it. Why is that? See, I, I believe one of the fundamental problems is we can do church. We can actually function in the Christian life in ways that don't require God at all. We could do all this stuff you could do church and Jesus might not be there at all. The Holy Spirit may be completely absent. And that's the scary thing. We never want to ask that question, is Jesus actually here? And we get comfortable 
with the things that are there that give us a sense that we've accomplished something. We create methods for doing the Christian life and doing church that requires very little help from the Holy Spirit. It's, it's dangerous. We just kind of function like a machine of the church and we just don't even realize the Holy Spirit is not here. I was asked this question once during seminary. I think I shared it in a past sermon, maybe a number of years ago. One of my professors, we were going through Acts or maybe studying the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And he asked the question, if the Holy Spirit left completely them, the church in America, would most of them notice? It's a very interesting question to ask. It presses upon our, our tendencies to be self-sufficient in what we do as a church, in what we do in the Christian life. And this isn't a modern problem alone. The church in Ephesus in Revelation was rebuked, not because they had a lack of faithfulness theologically or action, but they stopped loving Jesus. They forgot their first love. See, one of the greatest problems I feel like in the church, one, it's not the only one, but one great problem in my heart, one great problem in our church is that we could do church apart from Jesus. That you could do the Christian life, do all the things that are required of you, and Jesus might not ever be part of it. That's why we always ask the question, why isn't there more? Because Jesus isn't there. Because if you really experience Jesus, it doesn't matter how big things are, how successful things are, you would want more. You would know it. And those of us who know Jesus, we've had glimmers of that, right? That's why we keep pursuing him, but we often feel like we want more, and sometimes we get distracted from actually experiencing the power and presence of Jesus. That's why I want to look at Exodus 33. I think the wrestling Moses has with God here is exactly the kind of renewal we need. He's praying for a revival of God's glory and presence, especially after a massive failure of the people of God. And I, I pray that this is something you begin to long for. I'm still learning to pray this for myself. I want to pray this for our church. If nothing else happens, this is what we need, experiencing the Holy Spirit in you. I pray that you will pray for this kind of revival in your heart. I pray you will pray this for our church. I pray you will pray this for the church in San Francisco and in the world. First thing I, I want us to look at is why we need this kind of revival in our hearts. Why do we need the, to even learn this kind of prayer and this kind of bold asking that Moses has? Look back at the beginning of chapter 33. And the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, this is important, look at what God says. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are stiff-necked people. That is how I feel. I often feel stiff-necked. I feel like our church is stiff-necked. Because we're exactly like these people, aren't we? If you remember this incident, if you remember, we went through Exodus a couple years ago, but this is a very famous or infamous section. Chapter 32 is the golden calf incident, which if you're unfamiliar with that, we need a reminder, God's people, they were saved out of slavery to Egypt by God, miraculously, through 
God using plagues to demonstrate his power over creation, supernaturally brought through the Red Sea. After they get across and they're basically at the, the mount and on the way to kind of experience God and his presence. And at this point, notice, Moses is the main mediator. He's the main person that's kind of going the in-between with the people of God and God himself. He goes up to meet with God and they, he, he delays a little longer than they can handle. And so they begin to take matters into their own hands. Rather than worshiping God the way he wanted them to, they're in their anxiety, in their fear of the unknown, in their impatience of Moses' return, they fashion a new religion based upon what God said in a way that controls God. See, the calf that they create, it's a common image of, of power in the ancient Near East. And so that's what they know. And so they make it to represent God. I really don't think they created it. I don't said this is now God. They just saw God do some amazing things. So they weren't creating an idol and saying this literal thing is God. They were doing it to represent God, hoping that they could confine and control the living God into this particular form, create a religion which they can kind of control, confirm God's presence here, do the things that their culture has been doing all around them, basically kind of creating a syncretism of what God said you should worship me with, but a man-made version of it. They break the first and second commandments. They try and domesticate God to be something with they can control. Remember, these are people who saw God do great things. And in a very short amount of time, they've already backslidden. And that's the hard truth that we need to look at as a mirror to our own lives. We're not any different than them. No matter how strong your experience of God is, and they had a very strong experience of God. Some of you came to faith through amazing, miraculous means. No matter how strong your experience of God, no matter how close you feel to God, no matter how many years you've been following God, doing the church thing, no matter how spiritually intense you feel close to God, eventually, on our own, apart from the return of Jesus to make all things new, we eventually, on our own, cool off. We lose touch. We have a natural tendency to spiritually wander. The minute you stop giving attention to our, your relationship with God, that's when things begin to decay. I went backpacking in the Smoky Mountains in college with a bunch of uh, friends who are significantly taller than me. And so I say that because when you're traversing backpacking for, for days, you eventually have to get to points where you have to cross streams or what it felt like to me, significant rivers. And these guys are like all six foot and they're all like army guys. And they're like holding these 40 pound packs, leaping from rock to rock. And I'm like, I'm gonna die if I jump on this. And so I have to like walk way more than them, find a shorter distance up the river. But with them, one of the things I hadn't learned until that point, I, I think I quit Cub Scouts too early to learn this, but you know, when you get to nighttime and you wanna cook food, you have to start a fire. And so I finally learned how to start a fire with very little uh, during this experience. And when you start a fire and you keep a fire going, if you try and keep it going, you realize this. So some of you maybe have like fire pits and you used in your house or went you know, to Ocean Beach and started a fire, hopefully in the right pit and not just in the ground. And you start, keep a fire going, what do you need to do? You need to keep adding fuel to it. The, the moment you stop adding fuel to that fire is when it begins to start the process of cooling off and that's not something we experience on a regular basis, the, the keeping of warmth through fires. See, how, how do most of us keep warm in our homes, except when the power went out this past week for some of us? Right? What do you have in your house? 
you have a furnace. And what do you have attached to that furnace? You have a thermostat. And many of us even attach smart thermostats. We can control by our phone now. And what do you do? You set controls and settings in your home to the comfort level. Even, it actually says this if you have a smart device, right? It says, what's the comfort settings in your house? And then when it drops below a certain temperature, it automatically kicks on and it keeps you warm. It actually never really gets cold if you have a well-functioning thermostat and furnace in your house. But with a wood fire, you constantly have to tend to it because the moment you stop adding fuel, it burns out. See, I think this is kind of our spiritual experience of God. We, We think that our experience with God is like a home with a thermostat where we just kind of set something and it just kind of keeps going. No, but it's, it's more like a fire that you have to tend. Because we have a tendency to wander. I think this is especially hard in an established church or an established Christian's life who've been doing things for a very long time. I, I think we end up thinking by the things that we do, it's actually keeping the comfort settings right. But you can actually do all those things and not have any warmth, no fire, no presence of Jesus. And there's a coolness in our heart but we can't honestly look at the coolness because we just get stuck in the machine of doing things. As a church, you can, we know this. We just don't want to be honest about it sometimes. Do, go through all the motions. Do the services, run the programs, do projects, thinking that's keeping things warm. But we can do those things and not have God in it at all. And this is where the very beginning of revival begins. You admit it. You see it. You don't hide from it. You don't pretend it's not there. You realize when things are cool. You admit when you wander. You recognize the need for continual pursuit of God because we're prone to wandering and growing cold. Because Christianity, we we know this from the beginning of our faith, those of us who follow Jesus. We've maybe said something like this to others as we're sharing the faith. It's not following a set of rules and regulations. It's a living relationship And relationships need to be pursued and maintained. We need the humility to recognize we need revival in our relationship with the Lord, revival in our church. I think it's far too easy to grow cold, complacent, or even, this is the more dangerous one, you can grow cold in your confidence just to do church apart from God. And that's when we're in danger. Maybe that's where we are a little bit. This is the heart of revival. We need it because we have to maintain it. And I think many of us don't recognize we're just kind of going through things and God's not even there. We're too afraid to ask that. This is the heart of it, though. This is the heart of revival, which Moses shows us. In chapter 32, Moses amazingly intercedes for the people of God. God, in his righteousness, will judge them because he's a covenant, promise-keeping God. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse you, those who curse you, and if you follow me, I will bless you, and if you wander from me, right, you incur justice. God has Moses intercede for them. Amazingly, it's a foreshadowing of Christ we'll get to, but their relationship is strained now, right? Moses is interceded. They avoided destruction, and notice the relationship is strained again. Look at Exodus 33 again. That's why it says it this way, the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will bring it. 
I will send an angel before you. That's already a hint, right? So God is keeping his promises. He isn't destroying them. He's still gonna fulfill these promises he made to his people because he's a covenant promise-keeping God. It already, you can see the relationship strained, right? Instead of him going, he says, I'll send an angel. I'll drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. We look at this in Joshua. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, and I will, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are stiff-necked people. God says to you, I'm keeping my promises to you. I mean, there's a relational strain here. I'm going to give you military success, though, still. I'm going to give you economic prosperity. I'm going to give you health and wealth, everything you want in this life, but I cannot go with you. You can't have my presence because I am holy and you are stiff-necked people. I will keep my promise to you because he's a holy God. I will give you everything I said I would, but you won't have me. I won't dwell with you anymore. I can't. How would you have responded to this moment, this pivotal juncture? See, of course, our pious, our religious answer would be, of course, we would say to God, no. But if we really get down to it, isn't this exactly what most American Christians want? What I want? What you want? God says to you, I'm going to give you everything you want. Happy marriage, wonderful children who obey you and don't ever disobey you. You're never going to get cancer. Definitely not COVID. You're going to have a perfect body to eat all the carbs you want in the beginning of the year. Gluten-free, that's a thing of the past. All enjoy glorious gluten. I'll give you success in everything. You have money, power, influence. I'll give you heaven on earth, but you won't have me. Isn't that the average person who follows Jesus? Isn't that what they want? Health, wealth, prosperity, success, and Certainly, even in our church that doesn't <laughs> preach a prosperity gospel, isn't that still kind of what we want? Listen to our prayers without confessing, without repenting, without shame and guilt, where Sunday is for just sleeping in, where we benefit from God, but no accountability from God. Isn't that what we want? Reminded me of a quote from John Piper. Read this. The critical question for our generation and for every generation I think this is why we need to regularly ask this question, especially at the moment we are as in our church, in our history, looking into the future, is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, you give all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict and all, and, or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied in heaven if Christ were not there? You know that song, the older song, Give Me Jesus? We sing that song, right? But do we sing it like this in our hearts? In the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me happiness. How would you have responded to this? And the way you answer this question reveals what you think about God. Do we want a Christianity without Christ? This is not just us applying to us individually. This is corporately. I really want us to pause and think about this. Let's be honest, right? It's possible in this day and age with the 
resourcing, the power, the abilities to do church and have all the appearances of success that's totally void of Jesus. That's totally void of the Holy Spirit. I don't want that. I don't want to give my life to that. I hope you don't want it either. Well, we don't have to fast and pray for the church to grow. We have marketing for that. We have websites for that. We don't have to pray for people to come to faith. We just have, you know, real-run functioning programs. It's dangerously possible to do church and be amazed at our success, our size, our budgets, our buildings, and never notice the Holy Spirit's not there. See, one of the great hindrances, I think, for the advancement of the gospel in our time is to do church without the presence of God. I think more dangerous than immorality, the sexual revolution, secularism, the biggest problem we may have is that we do church based upon our self-sufficiency. And we think God is in it when he's not. Imagine this situation. You're engaged to be married. Anyone engaged right now in our church? I'm doing a premarital for a couple uh, couples. I guess they're not here in this particular time. But if you're engaged or about to be engaged, imagine this situation. Or if you're married, you remember this, right? During the engagement, one of you, let's say the, the wife, uh, is well-to-do, and she takes some of that money that she has, invests it, and unfortunately, it turns out to be a lousy investment, and massive amount of her assets are wiped out, completely gone. And she reports it to her husband, or her future husband, her fiancé, and your fiancé says to her, well, if that's the case and you're, you know, your portfolio is now wiped by 70%, forget this marriage. Breaks off the engagement. Now, first of all, if you ever have a spouse do, or an engaged person say this to you, 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 you are lucky that, they, that that's actually ended because that person doesn't love you. But how would you feel? You would feel violated if you're that woman. You say, this person certainly didn't love me for me. I'm just an end, a means to an end. I'm not the, they don't love me. They just want me for whatever reasons they want my money. In other words, it's the money that's loved and that person is just a means to an end. But do we actually do church, do the Christian life in the same way with regards to our living God who wants to know us, who's laid down his life for us, how did Israel respond? Amazingly, this is how they respond in verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on ornament, his ornaments. Disastrous. They mourned. Now, as far as they've fallen in many ways and wandered from the living God, they, they've tasted and seen the goodness of God. So they know when God says, you won't have me, they know that's it. This is over then. And they mourn. And Moses gets involved again. He says, in verse 15, he said to him, he's talking to the Lord, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. See, this is, this is the posture, I, I think, the heart that we need to discover again. If God is not with us, no matter what we have, how great things seem, how well-functioning things seem, it doesn't matter. It's ultimately meaningless if God's not here. It says in verse 17, 
And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. He, Moses, at this point, recognizes that God is saying it to him personally. I don't want to get into the technical details. There's the singular uh, a person here. And so he knows that he has a personal relationship with God, but he doesn't want that to just be for him. Verse 18, he says, please show me your glory. He, he knows for himself, he knows for his people of God, this is what's most important. If you're not gonna go with us, God, this, this is over. We got nothing else. Show me your glory. This is the heart of revival. This is the heart of what we need the most. I think if we're dreaming and thinking about church and what we wanna do and the things that we're doing right now and evaluating all that, this is what we most need, the glory of God, the presence of God. And what does that mean? Verse 19, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. This is actually what it means to experience his glory. And this is where revivals all begin. It's an experience of his character. It's his goodness. He says, I'll pay my goodness pass for you, mercy and graciousness. See, if you experience God's glory, it's not an abstract feeling alone. It's not just getting goosebumps because something has happened. It's, it's a revealing of the character of God and that bearing down on you. It gets inside of you. It cuts you at the deepest part of who you are. You see biblical examples of this. Peter preaches the gospel in Acts chapter 2, and it says there specifically that people were cut to the heart. That's the glory of God and his justice and mercy descending upon those people at that moment. You have experienced that if you know the living God. It's something about God's mercy and forgiveness, his sacrifice. It, those things that you just know about, they get in. And that's the glory of God descending on you. And that's what you most need. That's what we most need. And sometimes that happens individually. Sometimes it happens in movements. You see in Acts, thousands of people. You see that still today where the movement of God, when, that, when the Holy Spirit and his presence comes, and he brings to bear the good news about God and who he is and what he's done, that ripples through. There's no denying it when that happens. It doesn't always happen in mass conversions, but when it happens, you know, you see it. His glory is revealed. And that's what we need. As we're thinking about, I'm gonna share with our church like things that we're trying to do to better position ourselves, to, to engage our city, to be faithful to the world. All these things, there's some things that we're changing organizationally. This doesn't matter if Jesus isn't in it. Anything we do doesn't matter unless Jesus is here, unless the Holy Spirit is here. And we need to long for that. We need to pray for that. We need to seek that. There's a couple of ways I want to encourage you to prepare. Look at verse 6 of chapter 33. One thing that kind of stuck out to me, what the people of God did when they heard the disastrous news is the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments. When God said, I'm going to give you everything, but I won't go with you, they took off their ornaments. This is a very small thing, but I think a significant thing. They postured themselves to focus on God. You ever notice whenever crisis happens in the Bible, uh, or judgment happens in the Bible, what's, especially the Old Testament, what's one thing that immediately happens with the people? They tear their clothes and they cover themselves with sackcloth and ashes, right? That's a very common pattern. 
Because that is the heart that recognizes they need God. They focus. They, they stop doing life as they've been doing it, and they stop, and they focus on God. This is what we do when we're preparing for very significant things in our life. If you have a very important interview the next day, maybe you have a very important interview tomorrow, what are you going to do? Tonight, you're going to make sure you eliminate distractions. You're going to go to bed early. Maybe even lay out all your clothes, right, that you need to. You're going to prepare. You're going to focus. If you have a race, if your athletic competition is coming up, you don't wear more than you need to. You, you eliminate things from your time and your energy so that you can focus. See, one of the things we need to do to prepare for revival is to put ourselves in a posture of focus on the Lord. Israelites recognized, finally, they were stiff-necked people, and they took off their ornaments. And that is a posture we need to discover individually and as a church. Take off our ornaments. Maybe one of the greatest things that's stopping us from actually pursuing God is the things that we're doing. <laughs> because we're just doing things. Maybe there's some things we need to pause. Actually, this is one of the things I think we didn't learn from the pandemic, right? There's so much energy. We, everything paused during pandemic, right? We couldn't meet. Every, many of our programs stopped. But the, what's the first thing we did when things started coming back? How do we get back to the way things were? No. And I didn't have enough leadership courage to say stop. And we just kind of tried to do it again. No. Maybe God disrupted everything, so he said, stop and look at me. We just do things, and we just feel good about that. No one's actually experiencing God. No one's being converted. Why? Because God may not be there, right? Can we admit that? No, we need to posture ourselves, and that means something different for different people, right? Hopefully, there's a posture in our hearts where we long for him and create those spaces, some of us, it means engaging with the Word again, because we've stopped engaging with the Word. Some of us, we engage in the Word regularly, but it's just something we just do, and maybe it's stopping that, because actually, maybe sometimes we use Bible study to distract ourselves from Jesus. You realize you can do that? Because you just do something, because it feels really good that you've accomplished something, but Jesus isn't actually there? I mean, maybe you need to stop the Bible study, because you've been using that to avoid Jesus, but that's why it's not a blanket statement I can say all of us need to do this one thing. All of us are different places. But we need to take off our ornaments. There needs to be a focus individually. There needs to be a focus corporately. God's going to definitely put us in that position to focus for a little bit because there's some significant changes we'll share which will kind of force us to stop doing some things. And one of the things I'm trying to lead our leaders to think about is in that moment, instead of trying to respond so quickly, this is the moment to depend to pray, to even invite the church to say, what do we really need to do? Which is we need Jesus to speak into this. A second thing, get our attention off ourselves. If you, if you want to prepare yourself for what God wants to do, we need to get our attention off ourselves. Look at verses 15 to 16. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses wants to experience God's glory, but he doesn't stop there, right? Obviously, we are self-centered people. We want to experience God. But notice, his attention isn't just on himself. 
God promises to Moses, I will be with you. But no, he says, I, it, who's going to go with me? Who, which people? He's getting his attention off of himself. He's not stuck on himself. He's stuck on his family, his people. He's also stuck on the earth. Because he knows the whole point of experiencing the glory of God is that the rest of the world will experience God. See, the whole point of experiencing it is that it doesn't stay with you. It affects your family. It affects the world. See, what if our prayers were not just for ourselves? And what if our prayers didn't just stop at our own church? What if our prayers regularly were for the transforming presence of God so that San Francisco cannot avoid that Jesus is here? What if we regularly prayed, you know, prayed for the church in San Francisco and said, God, would it be so that all the the family of God in this city who professes to know you experiences your presence so strongly that even though they may disagree with our theology, they cannot but wonder what is going on. Is God really here? What if we prayed like that? That's the kind of prayer I want. I want to learn that. I want to learn that with you. Amazing thing about this situation that Moses is praying, and this is why I'm always amazed by God, and he never stops amazing me. We have more than Moses. Do you realize as much as Moses is asking for, you, if you are in Christ, have way more, infinitely more than him. We as the people of God have way more than the Israelites did. You know what Jesus prays in his prayer in John 17? He says, I do not ask for these only. He's talking about the people literally hearing it at the time. But this is how amazing Jesus' prayer is. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. Before we were even born, Jesus prayed for us. That prayer. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Moses prayed, blot, my, blot me out. He didn't get blotted out. But Jesus, when he says, I will sanctify myself, he was the one who was blotted out so that you can know the glory of God. Friends, we have more than Moses and his people during that time. And that's what we need to rediscover. That's what we need to pray for. That's what we need to experience as we're thinking about what we want in this year, as we're thinking about the future of our church. We need Jesus in a new and fresh experience of him again. Because I feel like I have gone cold. Because often it's just stuck doing these things that don't have Jesus in them. And I pray you begin to discover that and recognize that for yourself see that for our church and pray for that because no matter what we do, all the stuff that we're going to try and do as a church, that any church tries to do, if God isn't in it, it doesn't matter. And I pray that God would be in it. I pray that we have that kind of posture and longing for him again. Let's pray. And would you take a moment to allow the spirit to work? Hey, there needs to be personal confession 
Maybe there needs to be a, a committal of a taking off of ornaments. Maybe there's just desperation, God. I, don't, I know something's wrong, but I don't know what it is. Would you reveal it? Father, we are amazed that you continue to work your glory and the goodness of your people despite our stiff-neckedness for generations. Father, we know that you work despite us. Even if we're rebellious, even if we just do things without you, you will still work out your glory. But Father, would you help us to be in your will, Would you help my friends who are hearing to be within your will? May you help us as Sunset Church as we're imagining how to be your witness here in San Francisco, to be stewarding opportunities in the world. May, may you be in it. May we have the sensitivity to know when you're not in it, to stop, to confess. Father, show us your glory. You <laughs> promised it through your son's prayer. So you can show it to us now. By your grace and mercy, Lord, you are here. Your spirit is here. If we are seeking you, knocking at the door, you will answer, Lord. We don't want to move without you, Lord. We don't want to do any of the things that we're doing if you're not in it. Show us your glory. Amen.